Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, February 28th, we're studying Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 21. As the crowds around Jesus grow, he warns his disciples against the leaven of the Pharisees, he calls upon them to acknowledge him before men, and he teaches the crowds that life is more than the abundance of possessions. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor A.J. Espinoza. Pastor Espinoza serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Irvine, California. Pastor Espinoza, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me back, Pastor Apple. And this is a this is a cool text, I think, because you, you get you know four different little chunks that, that I mean each is like a just a little nugget by itself, but it it's really cool when you look at how it all ties together. All right, so I'm looking forward to seeing how these things tie together. As you said in the in the ESV, particularly, you've got four different headings, which sometimes are, are more helpful, sometimes maybe a little less. We get a chance to see how this entire text flows together. How does it how does it connect to what Luke has been telling us in the in the previous chapter? What's the context we need to know? Well, you, you get that phrase, you know, in in the meantime, um, that's referring back. It looks like to verse 53, when it says the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things. It seems like it's those many things. Um, the, the words in Greek are actually literally plural in the meantime. So it seems to go back to those plural, uh, many things. So it's kind of while he's just getting, you know, all, all of these questions, he's feeling all these questions, these, these, uh, and like it says in Ferris 54, they're not, they're not just, you know, questions, they're, you know, gotcha questions, <laughs> you know, like, think, uh, you know, stuff at, a, at an unfriendly press conference, right? So that, that's what's going on. You know, the Pharisees are, are just trying to, you know, get Jesus to say something wrong that they can, you know, just kind of have stick to him. Um, and, and, and that's the context that really shapes this, right? Like wh when, when he's just being peppered with questions and traps um, to try to turn the public on him, to try to turn him into the authorities, um, you know, when he's put on the spot and it's like, what am I going to say? Am I going to say something that's going to save my own neck? Or am I going to speak the truth? And, and I think that when you kind of see it in that lens, these uh, these these are like four little subheadings that we got in the ESV. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Have no fear. Acknowledge Christ before men. The parable of the rich fool. All of those tie into that context. So how how are these? I mean, and I know we'll look at this specifically as we read the text and discuss. But how how did how does this flow then with the leaven of the Pharisees not being afraid, acknowledging Christ, and then into the this parable that we'll look at, how, do, how does the text flow from one to the next into a, a cohesive whole? Well, um, it, it's it, it's an interesting thing. You, you got to really, I think, pay attention to um, how each of these little 
snippets is is introduced here. Um, you know, the key word in the first one is hypocrisy, right? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And uh, I always, when I remember I'm doing a Bible study, I got to re- remind people, um, hypocrisy doesn't necessarily mean hypocrisy in the New Testament. <laughs> it's it's very challenging for for uh, for translators not to use the word hypocrisy because I mean the the word hypocrisy comes from the Greek word here, um, you know, like it, it's, it's hypocrisis, you know, so you want to translate it that like so bad, uh, but it doesn't mean like, we, we use hypocrisy to mean like, uh, well, you know, for instance, I'm, I'm, I'm in California, right? So like the thing that uh, keeps getting brought up is how uh, our, our governor had, you know, implemented all of these restrictions, you know, because of the pandemic. Um, but he had been caught, you know, at, at some party without wearing a mask, right? And it was like, ooh, like double bad um, at, at the time, right? So hypocrisy, because, you know, he says one thing and does another. Uh, but in the New Testament, hypocrisy refers to um, like, like play acting, to just doing something just for the sake of appearances and to like people please. So that's more to do with like people pleasing. And so you got, you got people pleasing in the first one. Um, in, in the next one, what he says here, you know, do not fear those who uh, kill the body, have nothing more than what they can do. So, so you have their people pleasing, um, fearing what people will do to you. Um, in, in verse eight, acknowledging before men. Um, and, and so just in those three, you kind of see like, oh, okay. It's like, being worried about how people are going to hear you and what they might do to you, you know? Um, and, and then actually it's interesting, even in the last one with the parable of the rich fool, it, it ties in still, um, even though it's maybe a little less um, obvious. Okay. All right. I like that. And I appreciate the way you, you brought out hypocrisy and, and what it's meaning in this context and how that does flow into. And then, yeah, I'm looking forward to see how that's going to tie into the, the parable of the rich fool. So let's, let's go ahead and read a little bit here in Luke chapter 12. We're beginning at the first verse. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And it takes us through verse 12 of the text. We'll pause there. Pastor Espinoza, as the, the text begins, you know, you noted in the previous section at the end of chapter 11, Jesus had been speaking 
against the scribes, the Pharisees, they're trying to press him hard to provoke him to ask those gotcha questions. Mm-hmm. The crowds are gathering here. That's really striking how how many people are, are around Jesus. They're even trampling each other. And Jesus, he, he turns to his disciples. He narrows the audience a bit. Anything in that, just the, the setting, the scene that we need to, to notice before we look at what Jesus actually says. I think so. You know, and, and I think that it's really easy to just kind of go right by this bit about, you know, they're trampling one another. Um, like, it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, there's just a lot of people, right? Yeah. Um, but but thinking about uh, the flow here, Jesus is about to say things to his disciples and, and some things that uh, we, we, we can tell the Pharisees would not be very happy to hear. <laughs> um, but uh, in 53, like we were saying, the scribes and Pharisees are, are just, you know, going after him, you know, just with these questions one after the next. Right. Um, so I think the bit about the crowd is actually pretty important because I think the idea is, you know, they're kind of you know, kind of getting around Jesus and each of these guys is, you know, so it's like one scribe. Here's this hard question. Another scribe. Here's a hard question. Pharisee. Here's a hard question. Right. And they're doing this. But while they're doing this, like, uh, you know, just kind of this, just grilling him. Lots and lots of just, and, and I think this is important. Um, the ESV is kind of going with uh, a, a, one of the, the variants here. It says, you know, thousands of the people, um, but the, the, the critical text has chosen the word crowd there. Um, and I, Cause I think that's actually, it's, it's important because the idea is a whole bunch of non-Pharisee, non-scribe um, people, just kind of a whole bunch of just kind of random people. Um, are showing up, and what is that? Do, you know, so so much that it says they're trampling one another. That, that might be that might be too much. Another way of taking that is to say so they're getting in each other's way. So if you kind of imagine that situation, it's like you know, it, it's like the uh, the Pharisees and the scribes are kind of getting drowned out in this huge just kind of crowd of just random people. So their kind of grilling session that they had going on, and like with, with this kind of coordinated attack. It's just falling apart because there's just too many people who are gathering to hear Jesus, um, which, which kind of breaks up their their little, you know, trying to get him situation. But also because you can imagine then with this many people, there's just kind of a, 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 a kind of dull roar at this point. Jesus can now just turn to the people who are right next to him and just tell them things without even whispering. And no one, none of the people outside are going to hear it because there's just too many of them. Okay, so I mean, it's like you're seeing the the Pharisees and scribes. They've got this plan. They they're lying in wait for Jesus. They're trying, but just the the circumstances around Jesus are preventing them from accomplishing their goal. Yep. And Jesus takes the opportunity then to teach. And I mean, it does. It kind of strikes me that that's more than an more than an accident or a coincidence. But but we see evidence here of, of all along how the Lord you know makes use of the situation, directing the events all the way toward His passion, his cross, which is where he's heading at this moment. You know, back several of our guests have made this point that back in Luke 9, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He's going to get there. And so this, you know, this opposition that's growing a little bit here at this point, it's not going to prevent him from from doing what he needs to do to get to Jerusalem, which is including to teach his own disciples. So I, I think that that helps set the scene, puts it in the context, gives us a better picture of what's going on here. Yeah, I think so. And I think it, it also kind of helps explain his actual uh, comment itself. 
um, you know, where, where he's, you know, telling them to be on guard for um, hypocrisy, the, the, the people pleasing, right? The, the kind of scoring points with people, right? Um, and, and kind of, I think what he's saying there, um, I mean, in, in the first part where he's saying, you know, um, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light, where you've whispered in private room shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Um, I, kinda, I think his first point is sort of like, well, that kind of like, you know, saying one thing in private and then saying another thing in public to try to just make everyone happy. First of all, that's not even going to work um, because I, I think the idea is, you know, it says, you know, shall be proclaimed on the housetops. It's like God is going to bring it about that you are held accountable for all the stuff that you've said, even the stuff that you were trying to like keep in a tight circle. So um, on the one hand, like the Pharisees, people pleasing, scoring points kind of way of doing things and talking is is vain. It's futile. It's not going to work. Um, but then in the second point where he goes on to like, you know, have no fear, you know, he's saying also, you know, they're doing that and they're like, you know, trying to score points with people and try to please people because ultimately what? They're afraid of what other people are going to do to them. They're afraid of the worldly authorities, right? Those who can kill the body, it says in verse four. Um, but Jesus is saying, but there, there's there's really no point in being afraid of them because once they kill you, they can't do anything. Um, it's it, they're they're done. Like and they, so, in in a sense, Jesus is saying ultimately they can't touch you. I mean, ultimately your soul like is just beyond their reach. So it's kind of like a like a two point thing right there. Like there's there's just no point um, in in just worrying so much about the consequences. Uh, you know, and, and, and the opinions of other people that you would would hold back from speaking the truth, that you would that you would allow your words to become just kind of empty people pleasing, um, you know, kind of platitudes. Um, it's there's just there's just no reason um, on, on for the, for these two points that he makes. What Jesus calls this hypocrisy, this people pleasing. He calls it leaven that they are to beware. Why? Why the image of leaven for the people pleasing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees? Well, you know, in other gospel texts, um, leaven. You know, there, there's a, there's another saying where where he says um, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough, right? Um, and, and that's something that you know was meant to be a. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know why. I mean, I guess I guess people are. You know, in the last like uh, you know, like decade, I've gotten more into like homemade sourdough and stuff like that, right? So there's probably right. someone listening who 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 gets this, but like you only yeah need like a little bit, right? Of uh, you know, your your kind of uh, your, your your leavening dough from the previous batch to get like just all kinds of stuff going on, um, in in your new batch. So it's that kind of like contagious idea. So uh, I, I think the idea here is that you see Jesus kind of like. Uh, to, to, to your point earlier about how nothing's going to stop him, he's kind of saying like, look, guys, like, you know, they were, you know, uh, throwing all these questions at me. Right. But I didn't, you know, I didn't bend or break. And look, God himself changed the circumstances so that their trap just fell apart. Right. Like you, you don't have to try to save yourself by compromising your speech. And if you if you try to then you're just playing their game and really becoming one of them. Like it's a contagious thing. The Pharisees are only concerned about appearances and pleasing people. And if you 
just get into their game and, and just try to turn all of this into like a speech contest. Like who can, you know, one up the next person and kind of get the last zinger in and just kind of, you know, be, be the one who kind of looks really good, you know, like who claps back last on Twitter. Right. Um, you are doing the same thing. You're becoming one of them. You're getting leavened. It's contagious. You know, the way we said it, that don't play their game because it's contagious. I think that it, it illuminates a little bit for me some of the ways we see Jesus engage with the people who come to him. And, and what really comes to my mind is the the lawyer who comes back at, in chapter 10, oh, yeah. which leads to the, the Good Samaritan account and how Jesus just doesn't like play his game. No. You know, he, he doesn't, he doesn't. St- I don't know, stoop to that level. He does not yield to the leaven that's there, but he stays with the truth. You know, he he just confesses, to use the language of, of chapter 12, he simply confesses the truth to this lawyer and kind of lets his questions, you know, just go past him and, and he directs the conversation. And yeah. I think, I mean, I think that's kind of what, or that's part of maybe what Jesus is saying here to his disciples. Don't, like you said, don't play their game. It's contagious. It's It's leaven. And it will leaven the whole lump. I, I do a little bit of baking, Pastor Espinosa. <laughs> but it is, I mean, it's amazing how if you if you have like, say, a, a pre-ferment, something that you let ferment overnight, you just put the tiniest little bit of yeast into a, a pretty decent size of flour. And when you wake up the next morning, there's all these bubbles in it. And and it's very true how it, yeah. how it works. And, and Jesus says, just don't even go there because that's the effect it's going to have on you. Yeah, no, that, that's right. Yeah, no, and I and I, I myself don't necessarily um, do do dough so much, but like I, uh, I, I, I do like ferment some other things. Um, like I, I, uh, I, do, I ferment like a like a lot of like vegetables and you know, in fact, even like beans. But like I've noticed that that um, if like I, I have something one of my containers in the refrigerator while it's kind of like, uh, you know, kind of cooling off, like in the, in that stage of the, the fermentation process, if, if that's like open at all, <laughs> like yeah. thing, other things in the refrigerator start, start happening. That was, that was not intended. Right. So yeah, it, it's that, it's that idea, I think, you know, um, but, but yeah, it really, it really is something here. Um, you know, and I think it's something here for us because at least I feel this way. I have a very hard time, like when somebody, um, you know, starts talking to me or asks me a question or, or kind of approaches me in a certain way, it's very hard for me not to kind of like just kind of get on that track, kind of get on that that line of thinking to kind of kind of get into that game or frame and just kind of continue it. Um, and I think to a certain extent, this is probably true of probably the broader culture, because if you don't, right, if someone approaches you with, you know, like in a certain kind of mood or, or kind of a certain kind of language, you know, I mean, I mean, talk in a certain way, right? Like a certain register or, you know, uh, you know, maybe maybe they're kind of joking, right? It, then it's like, well, you should respond with another kind of humorous comment yourself, right? Right. It, it's very automatic. But if you don't do that, it's confrontational. Um, I mean, I, I mean, in its very nature, like if you, if you kind of say, well, I know you're, I know you're kind of, this is how you want to take it and how you want to spin it and how you're kind of approaching it, but I'm just going to go a different direction. That is, that is a direct kind of confrontation. I mean, even if you don't, um, you know, raise your voice or get angry, um, it's confrontational. And we, we have a confrontation averse culture, um, I think particularly uh, these days. Um, like, it's just kind of mortifying. Like you just, we just rather just not say anything to the person ever than to actually have to like confront them about it. Um, 
So I think it's a challenge to us, this this idea that you were just saying, you know, like what, uh, earlier in chapter 10, you were just mentioning how he doesn't play the lawyer's game. It's I think I think it's hard to follow Christ's example for us because we, we so desperately just want to just kind of like, you know, you know, play nice and make friends and and just kind of, you know, play play the game that that people are starting. Right. It, it strikes me how how there's a, I think there's a connection here to something that Jesus said previously in his Sermon on the Plain and his his Beatitudes and his woes that, you know, go together. And he talks about you're blessed when people hate you and, and woe to you when people speak well of you. And it, I mean, I think that's the Pharisees are experiencing that woe. They want people to speak well of them. Jesus calls his disciples to that opposite, to the blessing of speaking the truth at all times. And, and not going into the, the leaven of the Pharisees, not letting that infect them. And I appreciate the way that you, you explain verses two and three, because I, I really think that's helpful. Look, it's not going to work anyway. Yeah. If you, if you try to, to say one thing publicly while believing another thing, you know, and that's to please people, they're going to find out. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the age of social media has, has shown us that yeah. how, how often <laughs> right. someone tweeted something, however long ago it was, yeah. and, and suddenly it gets brought up and yeah, you, you weren't able to hide it. I mean, so yeah. the, the reality of it is very true. How much more so than, and I, I think if, if, if I can maybe get you to talk a little bit more about this, how much more so that when you try to cover something up, it sounds like, I think you were saying that, that God will bring it to light. That's kind of the, the passive nature here that will be revealed. Yeah. God's going to bring these things to light, even if if man doesn't ever see them. Yeah, no, that, that's right. I, I think that there is definitely. Um, I mean, I mean, this whole section here is is the Lord kind of um, approaching the disciples because he has a moment now that the, that the crowd has kind of come in to to help him. Um, you know, and it's, it's very interesting all these uses of the of the passive voice because you know they 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 have been gathered together, right? And I think there is. Um, Kind of like along your along lines of what you were saying earlier, the sense that like God is sort of directing these things, um, you know. He so he's talking to the disciples and he's trying to direct them from you know, worrying about people to thinking about God to scoring points with from from scoring points with people to uh, the very last thing that's said in this section being rich toward God, right? Like you know, who are you being rich toward, right? And, um, and, and definitely in this bit here that you mentioned in verse three, um, even though in our English translation, we end up kind of focusing on, you know, dark, light, um, private rooms, housetops, the, the words that, that kind of get emphasized in Greek are the verbs. So it's like, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light and whatever you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Um, and so I think those passives also, like, like you're saying, like point to God's hand in all this. So then as Jesus continues where the, the ESV puts, have no fear, but I, I think you're right. It, it flows very nicely. If I'm not going to be, I, here's why you can simply not play the game of the Pharisees. You don't have to go into their leaven is because, who are you afraid of and, and yeah. how that relates to who do you please? So you've already kind of talked a little bit about don't fear the ones who can kill the body. Uh, take us farther into the, well, the one that you should fear. Who's Jesus talking about there? Yeah. Um, it's actually, um, this it, is, is a neat thing here where uh, the word order helps you. Um, in, in verse five, 
um, you know, he, he says, you know, fear him who, and we should talk about the translation maybe a little bit, um, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. He says, yes, I tell you, fear him. Um, in Greek, it's it's the opposite way, uh, opposite order. Instead of fear him, it's tuton pobetete. Uh, which is which is pretty striking because um, normally that verb will almost always like come first in the sentence, but uh, when when uh, instead the pronoun comes first, that means it's being set up as the topic for the following sentences, right? Well, who's he talking about in the following sentences after that fear him bit in verse five? Um, God, <laughs> you know, it says right, you know, and. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God, right? So it's it's yeah, it's it's unmistakably uh, it's talking referring to God. God is the one who. Um, and, and the thing that struck me so about the translation, it doesn't actually say in the Greek that God's the one that does does the killing, which I don't I don't know if how much to make of that, but. Um, I, I think I might translate it something along the lines of like, you know, fear the one who after the killing is done has authority to throw into hell. Um, so it, it might it might in fact be kind of like imagining a hypothetical scenario where, you know, someone is killed for what they say. Um, you know, it's such a very, very hypothetical uh, situation, right? Um, <laughs> who, uh, you know, after, uh, you know, they've been killed uh, by these worldly authorities for what they say, God is the one in judgment who then will decide what to do ultimately uh, with that person's life, with that person's soul, right? Either to send them to hell or to raise them from the dead. So, yeah, I, I, I think that... Um, that there's maybe a couple of things going on here um, that, that of course connect to uh, places all over the rest of the gospel here. Sure. Yeah. But the main, the main point here, fear God, that's, yes. that's the point Jesus is getting at fear God, which is a, a striking thing per, perhaps for Christians to hear. So we need to spend a little bit of time talking about it, but we'll do so on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Luke chapter 12 with pastor AJ Espinoza. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, February 28th. We're studying Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 21 with Pastor A.J. Espinoza. He serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Irvine, California. Pastor Espinoza, prior to the break, we left off with a bit of a cliffhanger about fearing God. Jesus says, yes, I tell you, fear him, or as you pointed out in the Greek, him, fear. He's the one yeah. you should fear. Exactly. Which might be striking to Christians that we should fear God. What does it mean for the Christian to fear God? 
I really, I really appreciate the way that you just paraphrased that because in some ways that reflects uh, what, what the Greek is doing. Like he's the one you should fear. Right. And, and so it's actually very emphatic that the, the fearing is supposed to happen in this case. Um, but of course, uh, the the funny thing is uh, in in verse seven, it, you, then you get the comment, you know, fear not. So it's like, hang on a second, like, so are we supposed to fear? Or are we supposed to not fear? <laughs> Which one is it? But um, but yeah, there there there's something beautiful here. Um, I mean, the, the the point that the Lord is making here is that if you fear God, then you don't have to fear the other guys, and that's a big relief. Um, because at the end of the day, everyone's got to fear God. Um, I mean, you can just, I, I mean, in the sense of th- there is no like, you know, building yourself a strong enough fortress or buying a rich enough insurance plan that you don't have to be afraid of God, that like you're just kind of invincible, right? No. Yeah. Y- you either fear God or you're in denial. I mean, that those are the only two options there. But you can truly be in a situation where you do not have to fear all of the worldly authorities and the, the people who hang stuff over your head and who are trying to trap you and what you say. And in that sense, um, if you can get out of the denial and yes, fear God and in some ways just kind of run with that and lean into that fear, there comes a gigantic relief then because you don't have to be afraid of the other ones. When, when, when you say, you know, I've got someone on my side who knows how many hairs are on my head, right? Who, who, who doesn't lose track of the slightest part of me for even a second, right? Which is scary that someone would even know me that well, <laughs> you know, like, and keep track of me. Even, you know, people, we talk about, you know, privacy and, and you know, tracking and it's like, oh no, they're, they're tracking everything and look how much data Google has on you and things like that. And okay, maybe that is a problem, but it still pales in comparison to like, how much data God has on you. <laughs> yeah, right. And when it's like, when, when you can, when you can just be afraid of that, it's this weird paradox where like the fear turns into huge relief. Cause you, you just say like, I just, I, I, I don't have to be afraid of everyone else. Like you, you've got nothing on me compared to him. You can't, you cannot touch me um, because I'm in the palm of his hand. That's right. Well, and that's that's the beauty of this. When when you fear God, then look look who He is for you. You know, He's the one who who knows you perfectly. And what does He do with all that data? You don't have to be worried about how He might use that against you. He's using it for you. That the proof that Jesus gives is, well, take a look at the sparrows. You know, and and He uses this transactional language with the sparrows. But God doesn't forget them, and you're more valuable than them. So don't be afraid. And that's I mean, that's just the beauty of this. Fear God. Don't be afraid. And I, I love this language. And I think we, we probably could recover it more as, as Christians today that this fear God, sometimes we like, well, I don't need to be afraid of God. And wait, I mean, yes, you're forgiven. The Lord covers your sins. So you, you know what he's going to do because he's made his promise, but he's still God and you're not. And I think this language that the scriptures use of fear God and then fear not just right back to back like that. Is something that that we would do well as Christians to recover and use a little bit more and and enjoy the the richness and the really the comfort that's here in a text like this. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think that part of the um, to, to kind of bring it out a little bit more. Like, I think an important part of the idea of fear is um, is the perspective of inevitability. 
right? Like uh, when we're afraid about something, I think the thing that we're afraid of is like, we're like, oh no, oh no, it's it's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I can't do anything about it. It's going to happen, right? Um, and I think that when we can have fear towards God in the sense of seeing God as inevitable, seeing God's will as inevitable, seeing his kingdom and his judgment as inevitable, right? Like really feeling like, well, wow, there's just nothing I can do. God is going to have his way. There is nothing I can say. There's nothing I can do. There is no bargaining. God is going to do what he will to me, no matter what. Um, I, I think that that is the, an important aspect of the this fear that we're talking about. Um, that recognition of the, of, of the totally inevitable and... And, and it's right. It's in there that you get you get the paradox that that suddenly that fear through Christ, when you when you when you know, you know God through His Son, His inevitability is yes something to be afraid of and to have fear of, but then it's the thing that gives you all the comfort in the world. So it, it's it, there's something about that. Yeah, when I, I think that you know seeing it in Christ, as you said. Maybe it helps us to connect into the the next verses where, again, you have an ESV heading that interrupts, but I think it's it's very much connected. Don't be afraid. So then so then what? Well, acknowledge yeah. the son of man publicly. You know, don't don't say it in the dark. Don't be a people pleaser, but confess publicly what you believe about God in Christ. I think that's at least one of the connections we can make as the text continues on. Right, exactly. I mean, it's all has to do with you know public speaking. You know, what are you going to say publicly? Um, you know, like when when you're put in front of men, um, you know, worldly authorities, scribes and Pharisees, what are you going to say? What are you going to do? Um, and and yeah, he, he's redirecting them to that that inevitability. You know, in this case, uh, the you know the the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. That's that's a, a judgment picture. You know. Um, you know, the, he's been saying all along that, you know, the son of man's going to be coming with, you know, with judgment and authority and the angels of God, you know, they're the ones who are executing that judgment. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that it, we see a lot of uh, connections there. I think the thing that maybe begins to kind of make our, our minds wander and kind of get tripped up on is, is how it transitions to, uh, you know, verse 10, the, the one who speaks a word against the son of man versus the one who speaks against the Holy Spirit. And we kind of start, um, I, don't, I don't know, kind of like kind of churning out doctrine based on this verse. And I don't know, I, I think we often go in a very unhelpful direction. Well, take us in a helpful direction then, because that is, I mean, the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. You're talking about a verse that strikes fear into the hearts of people. That would be one. So take us with that verse in a helpful direction. Well, okay. So I'm going to venture a, a highly contextual interpretation here. Um, so, and, and this is kind of thinking about it in terms of uh, both the gospels themselves and also the book of Revelation, um, that if 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 our Lord is really thinking about the, the kind of impending disaster, the looming disaster that is the destruction of the temple um, and, and of Jerusalem itself, right? Um, I think there's a sense where he is saying, look, guys, don't be afraid. You know, acknowledge me, um, you know, now. Um, you know, because if, if, if you deny me, there'll, there'll be this, you know, denial before the, you know, the angels of God and, and um 
and, and yet there, 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 there is still forgiveness, right? Um, I, I think on a certain level, um, you know, like for instance, like Peter, right? You know, Peter denies Jesus, right? Um, you know, and but he is forgiven. Like there, there is still time, um, right around the ministry of the Lord Jesus. However, you you fast forward um, a couple of decades. Right. Um, if you're if you're, you know, if Peter's there, if, uh, you know, James is there preaching the gospel. Right. And, and now you're blaspheming and speaking out against them. Well, at that point, time is running um, very, very scarce and short. Um, there is not much time at all for forgiveness. And in fact, that's that's what happens. I think that um, the, the people in Jerusalem who are blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, uh, who who has been sent you know powerfully through Pentecost right you gotta think I think when you see Holy Spirit you gotta think oh yeah Luke wrote Acts too right um, so when they start blaspheming um, against you know the the Holy Spirit at work in the early church especially there in Jerusalem they are now running out of time and um, then unlike those who will, will will repent on Pentecost. Um, there's not going to be another opportunity there um, for forgiveness because the thing that's going to come down on Jerusalem is not the um, you know forgiving Holy Spirit and the tongues of fire proclaiming the gospel, but just the fireballs and the siege weaponry and the just utter destruction wrought by the Roman legions. I, I like the way that you connected that to the book of Acts and the day of Pentecost. And, and what really comes to my mind in particular is the quotation that Peter uses from the book of Joel when he preaches there in Acts chapter two, mm-hmm. you know, and the, and the thought of the time running short in the last days, God pours out his spirit. And, and then of course, you know, by the end of that quotation, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When you reject that in the last days, that's a, I mean, don't do that. Right. Repent now. Today is the day of salvation. And I do think that that contextual interpretation of this verse fits very nicely with, I mean, and I think really, I think it's, and I think it's very helpful too. Well, well, yeah, I think, and I think the way it can be helpful towards us is that we, we, when we kind of appreciate what's going on here in the, in the story of salvation, we, we can kind of stop wondering if, oh, d- oh, goodness, did, did w- the thing, the thing that I said, the blasphemy I just said, w- was that a sin against the Son of Man, or oh no, was it a sin against the Holy Spirit? You know, and, and then you start wondering, like, oh no, I mean, uh, you know, which, which person of the Trinity was I really blaspheming just now? And you know, and like, oh well, no, you said something against the Holy Spirit, not just against Jesus, right? And, and we can get into like all this kinds of stuff, and um, but I, I think. I think when you look at it contextually, you can say like, whoa, whoa, whoa okay, just put that stuff aside. Um, the, the point that he's, he's making is that God um, in that situation was very gracious and uh, gave Jerusalem an extra 40 years that it shouldn't have had um, to, to repent. Um, and, and many, many did, um, and, and their lives were saved for it. Um, the application then for us would be... Um, you know, we look in our present circumstances and, you know, you don't know if you are, you know, living um, in AD 30 and you've still got 40 years before the Romans come. Or if you're in, you know, AD, you know, 69 and, you know, they're coming in just a few months and there won't be any time left. So, I mean, I, I think that the if there is an application for us, it should just be that great humility. Um 
to that that you know that numbering our days like you know uh, like David says and just that that idea of you know don't don't take it for granted that you've got lots of time to to repent and so you can just you know say you can just comp- make some compromises and say some mistruths now but you'll cover it up later right you'll fix it later like there there might not be a later. Hmm. Well, and, and I think it's funny that you say that because Jesus is going to tell a parable that well, says that very thing. Isn't that kind of just a coinky dink? Yeah, yeah, I know, right? So, I mean, like, I think I think there's a, an amazing set of connections here. Um, you know that that idea. You know, he's saying, you know, don't be anxious about yourself, right? Um, well, yeah. Here's a guy who's anxious about himself. <laughs> well, let me let me go ahead then and, and read the rest of the text. We're picking up in Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's the rest of our text for today. That takes us all the way through Luke 12, verse 21. So, Pastor Espinoza, before we look very specifically at the parable, talk a little bit about, again, the setting for this. Jesus finishes a section of teaching. Someone in the crowd now speaks up. So remember the, the setting that we described now we're back in a slightly larger group here, at least for a moment. Mm-hmm. And he wants Jesus to talk about dividing an inheritance. Jesus says, "What? Why are you even asking me? Why? How is that setting helpful for us as we understand this parable?" Well, it's interesting. You know, there, there's no description of the person from the crowd. It's just like it's just a dude from the crowd. You know, so it's it's very random. So the the only material thing is what what they say. Uh, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Um, so you know, the situation is, uh, you know, I mean, clearly, um, you know, their parents um, have 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 died, or you know, m- maybe it's like a it's an arbitration situation where it's it's like maybe they haven't necessarily um you know died but you know he's trying to like get some assurances that when that does happen he's going to have enough to be able to take care of himself right but i mean that's that's the point right you you've got um in the previous verses don't be worried or anxious right and now someone from the crowd speaks out with anxiety and worry. Um, so, so it just, it just sets it up, um, you know, and I, and I think that as we've been seeing here, like the crowd is just, it, it's as if it's on a certain level, God's like directing the crowd. And, um, you know, so he just, he list lines this up for the Lord to be able to um, just, just cap off and wrap up this, this idea that he's been working on. Um, and, and so we've been, we've been talking about the, the, the anxiety and, and, and the, and the covetousness, um, when it comes to like reputation. Um, and here we're going to talk about it in terms of goods 
And I think the brilliance of the parable of the rich fool here, you think it's like I have a different thing, but it's really just the other shoe here. Um, whether you're worried about you know reputation um, or whether you're worried about material possessions, right? Um, ultimately, all this stuff is just kind of worrying about what's going to happen to you physically in the next you know however many years. And Jesus, in both cases, redirects the disciples towards what he, you ought to be looking about, uh, looking towards you know what's going to happen after this tiny short little while and with, with you know how people will you know either give you praise or or possessions it, no 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 don't, don't look at that look, look look about the bigger picture the bigger future that's coming and what god is going to be doing with you yeah i, I love that 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 we need to have that that eternal view not just what's right in front of me and i'm i'm just thinking through the rest of this chapter looking at some of the stuff that's coming it's amazing how the lord continues with these same themes yep. to give that you know that that certainty on the one hand of what the lord is going to do maybe building more on on what he was saying earlier about the hairs of your head being numbered he's going to be talking about don't be afraid little flock your father's going to give you the kingdom and then more of this very strong language about being ready being faithful he's he's building that through these this open opening part of the chapter, really just preparing the way for this longer discourse as it, as it continues. And, and yeah, whether it's your, your, where you're looking for praise or possessions in this life, how long is that actually going to last? And, and when is it going to be taken from you? Here's a rich man who finds it taken away just in a moment, just that night. Then what does he have? That's the, the view that he's, he's giving to his disciples. Life isn't about the abundance of praise maybe that's one way we could summarize the first 12 verses mm -hmm. now the rich fool life's not a, about an abundance of possessions so what are some of the the highlights from the the way that jesus talks about this rich man the actual parable itself in verses 16 to, to 20 and the way that he's thinking what are some of the what, what are some of the highlights in the way jesus tells this parable that that help us to to see yeah. it more clearly yeah okay yeah so um I mean, so uh, what, one thing is that the the identity of the rich man is uh, is, is immaterial. It just it just doesn't matter. He could be anybody. The, the the point is that um, you know his, his 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 land produces plentifully. So the the point the focus is on just circumstances, right? You know, like stocks are up, markets good, right? Um, chips are chips are up, right? Um, and and that, and that you've got, um, even in the midst, and this is really something, right? Like even in the midst of things being, uh, like a blessing, the guy is still worried, <laughs> you know, he yeah. thought to himself, what shall I do? You know, like I've got not nowhere to, so, I mean, it really, it really is something, right? Like it, um, you know, I think it, 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 many, many good teachers have, have pointed this out that, um, if you think to yourself that, oh, I wouldn't have so much to worry about and my problems would go away if I just had more money, you are fooling yourself. Um, it does, it does, it does not work that way. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's, it's the, the, the people who are the most insecure about their money are not the poor, but the, the hyper rich, I, I mean, it, which is just one of the, the greatest, you know, paradoxes of human nature. Um, that just like the more you have, the more desperately you cling on to it. Um, yeah. uh, though, of course, there is something to be to, to be said about you know just kind of godly contentment with kind of just happily sitting in the middle and, and just thanking God for having enough, right? Um, which gets right. back to the Lord's prayer. But um, but but yeah. So I mean, it's interesting that he kind of gets into this 
this idea of just, you know, kind of changing circumstances and how the human soul can just be worried about stuff regardless of whether, you know, the market's up or down. It's you're just you're just you're worried and you're focused on the wrong thing, you know, and, and it's a, it's a, it's more of this redirect here. Hmm. I, one of the things that's always stood out to me about this short little parable is how often the rich man refers to himself all, all the way to when it, it comes time for him to talk. The only person that he's got to talk to is himself. You know, hmm. he says to his soul, soul, or he says to himself, self, real, I mean, you know, you have yeah. all these good things. It's just, it's very striking, I think. And, and maybe goes to to show the the foolishness of the pursuit of riches and then connecting it to the previous, you know, the previous part too, the the foolishness of the pursuit of people pleasing, you can pursue it, and and maybe you think you've got it, but you never really do. And, and all this guy has with all his riches, he doesn't have anybody to talk to. He, he, of course, he's not talking to God about it. He's just talking to himself. And it's a rather, I find it actually kind of tragic that that's that's where he's left himself. He's spent all this time building, you know, his crops, his barns. It's all about him. And when it comes time to talk, he's got nobody else to talk to. And, and it's just a, a tragic thing, I think. Well, that that is actually, I mean, that is that, that is interesting. You, you kind of look at the, just the kind of the myopia on the, of the self is a, is, is kind of tragic in that sense. It's like isolating. Um, I mean, it, it is also just kind of disastrous in the sense of his, his perspective is just woefully small. Um, you know, I think in verse 19, the sense of the, the future tense there, you know, in, in the ESV, it's, you know, I, and I will say to my soul, um, I, I think the idea is almost like, um, you know, in verse 18, it's sort of like, you know, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll do this and, and, and I'll do that and I'll throw my stuff. And, 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 and then I'll be able to say to myself, look at this. I've got all of it, you know, lined up. I can relax now. Right. So, I mean, I think he's trying to like put the, the pieces together and, and, and say like, if, if I can, uh, you know, do this, this building and get all this stuff, you know, if I can like grab all this extra stuff and make sure I can hold on to it all, then, I will be set, right? Like, you know, that that's what will um, solve the problem of how I'm going to, you know, spend uh, the next, you know, many years, right? If I can just do this little bit more work, then I can take it easy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's just, how many times have we fallen into that, right? I mean, like, well, if I just tell like one more lie, right, then I can just get out of it. I'll be done with the situation and I can just go straight, right? And then I can be honest, right? Or, you know, if I'm just going to like do this one more, I hate this job and I think it's very questionable in terms of like the ethics and morals of the company, but look, I'm just going to get this one more paycheck and then I'll be able to just, you know, use the money and I, then I can like give to the poor and like, you know, work pro bono and like all the rest. Like, I mean, how many times do we do that to ourselves? Like, you know, we just, we just think that, you know, just kind of one more like, you know, misdeed and, and then we can, we, we can kind of clean up our act. And, you know, that this, this is the problem. Um, you don't know that you have that time to repent. Um, and in fact, this guy doesn't and uh when, when you have when you have that that myopia that 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 short-sightedness that tiny perspective where you're just kind of looking at yourself you know you're, you're not looking at all this other stuff that's going on um which might indicate to you and, and and in fact uh you know part of the lord's discourse here um 
like talks about this, you know, like, you know, especially later when he talks about, you know, like, well, you know, uh, how things are coming, you know, like later on in verse like 50, 50, what is it like uh, 54 and through like 56, it's like, you know, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why don't you know how to interpret the present time? Like your perspective is so small, you don't even realize how little time you have. Like you're making all these preparations for, you know, many, many years and you don't know that it's all about to be blown to pieces. So, I mean, this is uh, th- this is another, I think, layer of that tragedy. It's just that when we just focus on just ourselves, we just uh, fool ourselves into like, such such delusion. Yeah, the way you were talking about, you know, it's just just one more thing. That's that's all I need, and then I'll be set. Yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me. It go, to me, it, it takes my mind back to the the account of Mary and Martha, where Jesus says, "There's one thing necessary." Yeah, and I've often imagined Martha as in in a different way than the rich fool, maybe not to the extent, but I've often imagined Martha of always thinking about the one more thing, one more thing. One more yeah. thing to do. Yeah. Mary says, I just need the one thing necessary. And Jesus, of course, commends that to Martha as well. And and here to his disciples, I think, also. So Pastor Espinosa, we got about a minute left here. And that last verse is such such a beautiful one. And I think helps to wrap things up. Help us to to see how in that last verse, verse 21, Jesus does draw these themes together and and call us to the goodness that he gives to his people. Yeah, it's an amazing verse because you see then that verse 21 isn't just summarizing the the parable, but all the stuff that came before it. Um, when you decide to, you know, acknowledge the people who are in good standing, right? When you worry about the people and authorities who can kill the body, when you go ahead and you play the game of the people pleasers, you are just laying up treasure for yourself. You're laying up points for yourself, popularity for yourself, right? You are, you're focusing on the short term and saying to yourself, if you can just kind of, you know, keep, keep playing this game and just you, you take care of you, you're, you're going to be set. Um, but there's the redirect. Um, no, th- this is a disaster because you're not rich toward God. That plan is being rich towards yourself, being rich towards God. How do you, how are you rich towards God? Well, you give God glory. You acknowledge him. I mean, clearly God doesn't need anything. But what can you give him? You can give him glory. You can speak the truth. Um, and, and I think that whether it's speaking the truth or like acting on the truth by by living generously, um, you know, all those things kind of come circling around. Uh, you got to look at the big picture, like you were saying, like, you know, like the one thing needful. Well, I mean, Christ is taking care of everything. So the only thing left is just to give God glory, to give him praise and thanks, to, to embrace the consolation that comes in the midst of of the fear um, of, of knowing that it, it's not up to you to try to fix all this stuff in the short term. Just God's going to have his way anyway. Um, and his way is really the best, the richest, um, and the one that's that's actually going to happen, whether, whether anyone likes it or not. Pastor A.J. Espinoza is pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Irvine, California, helping us today with Luke 12, verses 1 to 21. Pastor Espinoza, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me, Pastor Apple. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 12 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. 